I think this this starts, you know, uh, bringing us up to the question then um, that really is motivating this chapter. Uh, you know, it's not only that all of these definitions, the kind of Weberian von Ehring definition, the Marxist definition, the functionalist definition, all are interesting, all are useful, but all leave something left to be desired. And none of them ever uh, really are able to answer that question of where did this come from, right? Like where, what is the origins of the state? Um, origins plural, right? Not origin as in one single point, but what is the kind of development? What, where, where, is, where is this thing that we conceive of as states coming from? And what did they actually look like over time? You know, we cannot just assume that the state sprung forth, fully formed in its modern uh, conception or modern state of being. Um, that, you know, it, it, it had to have some kind of more embryonic development. And, and, you know, as we've seen throughout the book as well, it's oftentimes it looks much more weirder and more bizarre and more interesting, um, and more variegated uh, across different spaces and times um, than we are led to assume in our very simplistic uh, stories. Yeah, as Jeremy, you know, what, the the state was not a chest burster that you know just like burst from the chest of humanity and said, "Ah, here I am. I'm the state." Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's it, it's it's not that simple. That's that's kind of giving us the introduction to this big ass chapter. So then this kind of brings us to, as you're saying, we need to ask, OK, if we are going to operate on the assumption or if we're going to look at instead of operating on the assumption, if we look at the evidence as we've surveyed these past few chapters and seen that social complexity doesn't necessarily mean a central apparatus um, that individuals and groups independent of a course of force or monopoly on violence force can organize pretty complex bottom up community based or democratic forms of governance, you know, um, then why do we insist that certain things look like a state? And then what are they in actuality? And then when does the state actually emerge? Right. And, you know, they, they, they try to think a little bit about the contrast between these heroic and these, and these bureaucratic societies that talked about in chapter eight. They try to think through about the merge that we, you know, talked about that happened in, I believe, the Fertile Crescent Valley when, um, when groups are trying to expand their sense, their egalitarian societies and absorb the neighbors into them. But, all of this, I think, as they say, kind of distracts from that core question they're really concerned about, which is like, can we have complex things without coercion? And does coercion and, you know, one, can we have complex things without coercion? Two, if coercion is complex or I mean, if coercion is necessary or not necessary, what does that say about the emergence and the presence of the coercive systems that emerge and persist? right? About hierarchies, about slavery, about privilege, about uh, about violence, about war. You know, what are all of these things emerging? And But also state building and infrastructure and common good projects. What does it say about all of them if a state is or isn't necessary, if coercion is and isn't necessary? 
And so one of the places, so they start in the next section titled in which we lay out a theory concerning the three elementary forms of domination and begin to explore its implications for human history, right? Thinking through the forms of freedom and forms of domination. Now, we already established the forms of freedom relatively early on, right? Um, and they were central to the indigenous critique chapter. Freedom to disobey orders, right? And we talked a bit about how, and they wrote extensively about how in indigenous pre-contact societies, um, and even on, upon contact, as ob- observed by the Jesuits and by the European colonizers, um, you could not compel someone to do something they did not want to do. And a lot of energy was spent training rhetorical faculties so that you could persuade people to do it, right? Moving them to the point of tears. Um, the freedom to reorganize social relations. You know, we've talked about extensively seasonality of politics, right? The uh, experimentation that went on, um, the ability to, to move in and out of rigid authoritarian regimes, more flexible, more communitarian regimes, um, but also the freedom to move and creating these massive cultural zones in which not only objects, but people could move across an entire continent or region. And so here, you know, instead of relying on Rousseau and his thought experiment about private property and insisting that, you know, this is not on, or using that thought experiment that he established where he tries to see that property rights is the, is, is the basis of society. It's the basis of civilization. It's the basis of how we convince others to do what we want to do. Moving away from that and recognizing that as a sort of particular fixation out of a very specific legal and intellectual tradition in what we might consider the West, right? That the obsession with property rights makes sense coming out of a very specific history that this part of the world has gone through. But as such, we need to step back and ask, does it actually make sense to apply that sort of analysis to the rest of the world? You know, as they ride, you know, just a simple question to begin with is what are we really saying when we say that the power of a feudal aristocracy or landed gentry or absentee landlords is based on land, right? This thing is the is central um, to how our modern civilization operates, how our political rights are conceived. How this is how social relations are organized, right? What are we talking about when we're talking about land and property rights? You know, there are uh, some historical examples that they kind of land on to try to flesh out some of what's going on here and some of the obfuscation that goes on, right? Here, they uh, one of the first examples they land on is a the Whigs and the Tories, you know, two of the major, the two major political parties in England at the turn around the 19th century. And they presented themselves as arguing about free market liberalism versus tradition, right? A certain type of tradition. And as they write it, uh, an historical materialist might object that, in fact, Whigs represented the interests of the commercial classes and the Tories, those of the landowners. They are, of course, right. It would be foolhardy to deny it. What we might question, however, is the premise that landed or any other form of property itself particularly is particularly material. Yes, soil, stones, grass, hedges, farm buildings, and granaries are all material things. But when one speaks of landed property, 
What one is really talking about is an individual's claim to exclusive access and control over all the soil, stones, grass, hedges, etc. within a specific territory. In practice, this means a legal right to keep anyone else off it. Land is only really yours in the sense if no one else would think to challenge your claim over it, or if you have the capacity to summon at will people with weapons to threaten or attack anyone who disagrees, or just enters without permission and refuses to leave. Even if you shoot the trespassers yourself, you'll still need others to agree with you that you were within your rights to do so. In other words, landed property is not actual soil, rocks, or grass. It is a legal understanding maintained by a subtle mix of morality and the threat of violence. In fact, land ownership illustrates perfectly the logic what Rudolf von Erring called the state's monopoly on violence within a territory, just within a much smaller territory than a nation state. You know, as they, you know, it may feel abstract, but as they implore the reader to just think, I mean, like, think what would happen if you tried to squat in a building. Think what happened if you tried to occupy some piece of land. Think about what would happen or what you are doing, or what you know you're doing, or understand yourself to be doing if you trespass, right? We all know that it comes down to the fact that someone will be given orders to use force against you, right? And whether or not that person is willing to do the order um, and to follow through the order. That this also traces back, I mean, this is obviously immediately a connection to the freedoms, uh, the three principles of freedom, right? But also, uh, you know, part uh, to larger points that they make where that you know, what really matters and what we all understand, whether it's in a revolution, whether it's in simply squatting on a piece of land, is that it comes down to whether or not someone is going to recognize that legal understanding and act upon it.